Hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible, the science and art of interpreting the Bible. Last week, we began the study by asking the question, what is hermeneutics? And now that you have your books, you can see on page, <clears throat> is it page seven? Page eight, page eight. You can see the definitions of hermeneutics. Does anyone need a pen tonight? Shkombiso, get us another pen for this gentleman right here. All right, we're on page number eight, and we're asking ourselves the question, what is hermeneutics? We covered this last time, but let's just give a review. So we're asking the question, what is hermeneutics? And we have five examples, letter A, B, C, D, and E. What is hermeneutics? Letter A, it's the science and art of interpretation. Letter B, what is it? It's a set of guidelines, right? Underline that phrase, letter B, set of guidelines. Letter C, what is hermeneutics? Rules of interpretation, so underline that phrase. Rules of interpretation, letter D. Control or guidance, underline the phrase. Control or guidance, that's in letter D. Letter E, what is hermeneutics? It is the art of discovering what God actually meant in a passage of the Bible through three things, observation, reason, and valid applications. <clears throat> so last week we asked ourselves the question, what is hermeneutics? Now we've just reviewed it. Do we have a clear idea in our minds of hermeneutics? Let's see. Nico, Inchini, hermeneutics. Lloyd, Dichihi, hermeneutics. Okay, it's rules or guidelines. What do we do with those guidelines, Takaro? <clears throat> exactly. Here you are. It's Tuesday morning or Tuesday night and you open your Bible and you begin reading and it's 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 difficult. You don't what does it mean here? You read something in in Acts chapter 16 and you say I don't understand. Ah, this is hard. What does this mean? How are you going to answer what it means? You use what? Hermeneutics, the guidelines, the controls, the rules, hermeneutics. Wait a minute. You're reading the Old Testament prophets. You read the book of Isaiah. And you say, I don't understand this. How are you going to understand it, Vanessa? Okay, you're going to use the rules... And of course, those rules are going to involve observation, reason, and valid application. There are eight rules, and starting next week, we're going to get into those rules. And then we're going to take about two months on eight rules so that you will know how to use the rules. When you drive a car, you must follow the rules of the road. When you open your Bible, you must follow the rules. 
And starting next week, I'm going to give you the rules. So then, what are we doing this week? Let's talk on page number nine about something very important. Exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis means what? Who wants to read that? Letter A. To draw the meaning out of the words. All right. Underline that exegesis, to draw the meaning out. And you can look up on the board here, and you'll see two parts to that word, exegesis. Ex, the Greek word for out of. Jesus, show, demonstrate. So we've got two parts, exegesis. Can you see that? Exegesis, out of, to show, or to show out of, to bring out, to teach from out of the Bible. You're getting the ideas from the words and you're bringing them out. That's exegesis. But there's another one. What's the, what's the other one? Letter B. Eisegesis. Let's write that one up here. E-I-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S-E-G-E-
you're able to see what the blacks are thinking. When he tells the story of the Van Dorns, you can see what the whites are thinking, what the Dutch are thinking. And then when he tells the story of the English, I've forgotten their name. <laughs> you can see what the English people are thinking. And these three are woven together throughout. Now, here's what I bring this up for. It's a, it's a very interesting book because he shows the strengths of the Kosa and the weaknesses. The strengths of the Afrikaner and the weaknesses. The strengths of the English and the weaknesses. But he brings out in that book that the Afrikaners, every few months when they had just left Cape Town, they were pushed out by the English. The English said, we want to govern. And the Afrikaners said, no, we're going to be the rulers. And so the Afrikaners began what's called the Trekpur, and they moved out slowly, piece at a time, going out to the north and to the east to move out all through South Africa because they didn't, they couldn't stand those English. And James Missioner says, by the way, the Afrikaners get, got along better with the blacks than they did with the English. We can't stand you English people. And so they started to spread out through the country. And this is in the early 1700s as they're spreading out through the country. And he says this, because they were trek boers, they were farmers out pulling their wagons in different parts, they would come back every two to three months for Nachmal. Nachmal is the Lord's table at the Dutch Reformed Church. And they would come back and stay for two to three days. Now here's the point for eisegesis. They, when they came back, taught that the Old Testament was referring to the Afrikaner. The Afrikaner were the people in Joshua who were marching out through the land trying to find a place to stay. It was the Afrikaner who were fighting against all these countries who were trying to overthrow them. And when they saw Philistine, they thought of the English. And when they hear about the Canaanites, they think of the Kosa. Eisegesis. They took their ideas from life. Did the Afrikaners have a hard time? Yeah. But they took their own hard ideas and they pushed their ideas into the Bible. And he shows in that book an actual document where an early group of Afrikaners wrote down, not all, but some wrote down, the blacks are supposed to be hewers of wood and drawers of water because that's in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, I'm sorry, in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites lied to the people of God. And so Joshua said, you will be hewers of wood and drawers of water. That is, you'll be our slaves. And the Gibeonites said, okay, because we lied to you, we'll be your slaves. And some Afrikaners put in a document early on, the Africans have to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. How did they, how did they read the book of Joshua and say, oh, we are Israel? And the Gibeonites are the Kosa. How did they come to that conclusion? Right there. Eisegesis. If you thought to yourself, oh, hermeneutics, this doesn't affect me. It does. It affects right where you are. Now, I give an example from the Afrikaners. Let's give an example from the Africans. Black Africans. 
there is a very large group that calls itself Christian. And every year in March or April, they take the book of Psalms chapter 2. And they go around to verse 6 or 7 where it says, I have set my king on my holy hill. And they say that there is a hill 100 kilometers from here. And they say that Psalm 2 is talking about a hill 100 kilometers from here. And they even gave a name to the hill. What's the name of their hill? Moria. Why do they call it Moria? Because in Genesis chapter 32, I believe it's 32, Jacob goes to Moria. And that's where Abraham had gone to offer Isaac his son. And together they say, aha, that Moria is where we're going. But they forget that Moria is in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is about 4,000 kilometers to the north. It's not 100 kilometers to the south. But the ZCC practices what? Eisegesis. When they open Psalm 2, they don't care at all that Psalm 2 is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't care at all. They get the idea, we are God's people. And our bishop is God's king. That's why you have to have his picture in every house. Eisegesis is sending millions of South Africans to hell right now. Because they started with their idea. They said, I know what my idea is. My idea is that the ZCC is true. So now when they open the Bible, that's what they find. So they had a presupposition. And they took and they pushed their presupposition into the Bible. Exactly. Exactly right. Eisegesis lives and dies with selfish presuppositions. When we have our own ideas that we start with, we don't go to the Bible first. We start with those ideas. And then we can arrive at many wicked conclusions. All right, do you need me to attack an American? Let's attack an American. And a good example of eisegesis there. So it'll be, it'll be equal opportunity, okay? So you won't think I'm just attacking South Africans. There were many Americans in the 1850s, 170 years ago, who defended slavery. They said, it's a good thing that black people are forced to be the slaves of white people because slavery was in the Old Testament and Solomon had slaves and David had slaves And other prophets had slaves. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to Philemon, I'm sending your slave back to you. And some of those whites who call themselves Christians would say to the black men, no, 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 don't fight. Just be my slave. Because Paul said to Philemon, I'm sending your slave back to you. That's an example of what? They started with the idea that we want you black people to serve us. They did not start with the idea, 
I want to know what God's word says. They did not pull the meaning out of the Bible. What did they do? They pushed the meaning into the Bible. Eisegesis. It's a terrible danger and it happens all the time. Can you think of any examples of eisegesis that you have heard? Maybe you went to church. Maybe you were watching on TV. Do you want to share any examples? You can think about it. And anytime you come up with one, raise your hand. But I'll give you a chance now. Because this will really... I know you've heard of eisegesis. You've been in a church. You heard a man talking. You thought, ah, where did he get that from? Go ahead. the Sabbath day, they don't cook, they eat cold food because the Bible said you must rest even your servant, your donkey, your cow, everything in your house must rest. So they took that Saturday to rest and not to cook. So I think it's ice Jesus. Okay. That's a little complicated because it is eisegesis when you come to the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, that, that's what they did in the Old Testament. Let's come back to that one. That's a good example. Let's come back. That's a little complicated. We'll come back to that one just now. Any other examples that you can think of? Eisegesis that you've heard? I don't know. Maybe when we were in the Sunday schools in the, in school they teach us now the homosexuals and that stuff it's not uh, uh, it's that they are not breaking the law because in the New Testament and now you don't uh, do uh, what you call it death penalty uh, no uh, what an Afrikaans is offered when they take sheep or offerings, food, oh. yeah, offerings. we don't do the offerings now. Yeah, so. The, so, so that law is also not applicable anymore to the, the some a lot of rules that we ask about that they don't do anymore. They say, yeah, don't worry because you are doing offerings. That's a good example. There are a number of books being written today on how you can be a homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Every single one of those books is built on eisegesis. They started with the idea, I want, I want to continue in my sin, or I want to protect other people in their sin. Every one of those. And they had to start with that idea and pushed it into the Bible. They did not pull it out of the Bible. Good example. Go ahead. And there is this church called IP, IPC where they misinterpreted Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, where it says that a certain woman shall be the, 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 chasing the, after one man. Chasing one, one man. So that is why one man is saving more than two wives. That is a great bad example. That is a great bad example. Polygamy. People start with the idea that I want to have many wives. They don't open the Bible and say, I just want to know what this word means. Good example. 
And you can think of many more. You got one? Go ahead. Well, some are saying that when you are a Christian, you can, even if you sin, it's not, you're not really sinning because you're a new, tree, you're a new creature. <clears throat> so you don't need to repent. Yes, I have heard that. That's called antinomianism. It's a false teaching and it's built again on eisegesis. They'll go to a passage, but since they have their own ideas, before they even come to the passage, they've already got their conclusion. Excellent examples. And we can go on. If you've got more, feel free to raise your hand. I think these examples are helping us so that we can see, aha, this is how it applies to life. I've got a few examples written here too. If more come up to you, feel free to raise your hand. Letter B. Eisegesis means... To take the meaning to the words. Number one, eisegesis is wrong because it changes God's word into what? Man's presuppositions. Number two, it's wrong because it ignores what? Inspiration. Number three, it's wrong because it does not protect what? Number four, it's wrong because it is what? Lazy. It is hard work to interpret the Bible. And many people are too lazy to read the Bible carefully. Number five, eisegesis is wrong because it implies that our thoughts are just as good as God's thoughts. And that's the great sin, number five. When you commit the sin of eisegesis, what you are doing is saying, my thoughts are as good or better than God's thoughts. Because God has thoughts, for example, about polygamy. God thinks something about polygamy. And when someone goes to Isaiah 4 and does not pull out God's thoughts, they just bring their own thoughts, they are saying... I know you have thoughts, but those thoughts don't matter. What matters is my thoughts. The same thing would be true with the Sabbath, or with homosexuality, or with prosperity, or with freedom to sin. Look at the bullet there. When you are preaching from eisegesis, God's listening. And he is saying, I didn't say that. The preacher just said I said that, but I know what I said. I wrote the book and I didn't say that. Underline that whole thing. Write it down. Put it on the back of your car. Put it as your status for Facebook or tweet it on Twitter or whatever you do. Get that out. That's a great line. Let's give some examples of eisegesis. And what I've done here, look at letter C, examples. What's the fir- what passage is the first example from? John 10, 28 20 and 29. The second example is what? The very next verse. The third example is? And the next example is from the same passage. So I, what I want you to do, the reason I chose John chapter 10 is we can get... Four common examples 
of eisegesis from this one passage, many, many people misinterpret the Bible. And here's an example from one passage, four different examples. Number one, John 10, 28, and 29. I give them what? Eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Proposition number one. I believe you can lose your salvation. Okay, help me. What's the subject of proposition number one? What's the subject? I. What's the verb? Believe. Who's doing the believing? Me. I. I believe. So do you see what does it start with? Does it start with God in the Bible or does it start with me? Me. me. Do you see? Do, are, that's the beginning of eisegesis. Eisegesis always starts with this. Well, I think, I, I, I've always said, eisegesis starts with I, me, ni, ndi. I believe, da, 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 da. Proposition number one, I believe you can lose your salvation. Now, wait a minute. Look at those verses, John 10, 28 and 29. Do you see in John 10, 28 and 29, Any words that would correct the idea that say you can lose your salvation? What words in John 10, 28 and 29 would correct you from thinking that you can lose your salvation? They shall never perish. And what else? Papa Nico? No one will take them out of my father's hand. They have eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says it again in case you missed his point. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. But do you see what eisegesis does? Eisegesis ignores what is written and starts with who? I. I believe someone can snatch you out of God's hand. But we'll look at proposition number two. John 10 says that no man can take away your salvation. So proposition two and proposition one are contradicting each other. Look at the conclusion eisegetical conclusion, men may choose to take themselves out of the hand of God. Does John 10 verse 28 say that men can take themselves out of the hand of God? No. Where did they get that idea from? Where did they get the idea that men can take themselves out of God's hand? They got it from themselves. That's exactly what eisegesis is. And it happens all the time. Look at the next one. I and my father are one. John 10 verse 30. Proposition number one. I believe Jesus is not God. What's the subject? What's the verb? 
Who are we starting with? Me. Proposition number two. John 10 says what? Jesus is God. Isogenical conclusion. Well, Jesus has the same mindset as the Father, but he is not God. Now, does John 10 verse 30 bring you to that conclusion? It doesn't. I and the Father are one. Anyone who was reading that passage would say, oh, that has to be a clear teaching that Jesus is God. But Jesus says, no, no, I start with the idea that Jesus is not God. And who in this town believes that Jesus is not God? Jehovah's Witnesses, the watchtower, okay? Who else? The Muslims and? Yeah, maybe the ZCC. And many others, because you know that little track that I have, that I walk around with, the first question is, who is Jesus? Letter A, man. Letter B, God. Letter C, both. I've done that to hundreds of people. I made 2,000 flyers. In fact, I think now it's 4,000. And I'm almost done with the second batch with all 4,000. I have done those all over here in Sangha and in English. And commonly, and it was your idea, Dakota, that said, put down letter C, both. <laughs> it is very common for people to get that question wrong. Just Saturday in Shkoda, I was evangelizing. I got a group of young men. They all said, oh, he's man, he's man, he's man. And they, they got that error, that question wrong. Uh, number three, John 10, 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Proposition number one. I believe that men are basically what? Good. Again, who are we starting with? I, myself. Brothers and sisters, let me warn you. This is not a cold college class. This is a living, vibrant time to get right into your hearts. You watch it anytime you read your Bible because your flesh is going to want to keep saying, well, that can't be true because I've always thought it's going to happen to you when you read your Bible and you need to push away all of your thoughts and take up God's thoughts. So the Jews want to kill him. Number one, I believe that men are basically good. Proposition two. John 10 says that the Jews tried to kill a good man. Why would the Jews try to kill a good man? Are they good or are they bad? They've got to be bad. You don't kill a good man unless you are a bad man. Isogetical conclusion. The Jews were basically bad, but... Other men are not basically bad. Now, if you reach that conclusion, you are missing John's point. And everyone knows it. And everyone feels a little uncomfortable when they read that passage. She's trying to kill him. Ah, oh, that's not good. Huh. But do you think you're better than the Jews? If so, you've just made yourself like Satan. You're full of pride. And I'll remind you that the Jews, though they are less than 0.2% of the world, have 
achieve 22% of the Nobel Prizes. They're constantly winning awards in science and politics and writing. How can such a little country do so much? Come on, Vendas. Why can't you do this? Oh, but we're better than the Jews. Then why can't you at least give me some Nobel Prizes? No, the reality is the Jews are bad people and we're bad people. Okay, fourth example. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Proposition number one. I believe that men are little gods. Do you see what he starts with? I believe. Proposition number two. John 10 references Jesus, who references Psalm 82, which references God referencing human kings. Let's stop. Before you turn the page, before you turn the page, I see a turning. Would you call that a simple sentence or a complex sentence? John 10 references Jesus, who references Psalm 82, who references God, who references human kings. Would you call that a simple sentence or would you say, well, it's actually complicated. It's, it's complex. Simple or complex? It's complex. Now look at the conclusion. All humans are little gods who can speak money and health into existence. That's actually what they teach. They teach that humans are little gods who can speak money and health into existence. And I was glad Sunday when uh, Mufundis told us very clearly in Valdesia, this does not mean that we are little gods because we are so proud and selfish. We will resist the, the humbling parts of the Bible and will grab anything to make ourselves proud. Do you honestly think that Jesus said, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. Do you really think that Jesus wrote that in the Bible and said that? John wrote it and Jesus said it. So that we would believe that we are all little gods who can speak money and power into existence? It's so obvious that's not what he's saying. What God is saying is, what Jesus is saying there. In the Old Testament, Jehovah condemned all the men who called themselves gods. All the Robert Mugabe's and the Donald Trump's and the Ramaposa's. And he stood up to all of them and said, you think you're so strong? You hold the power of the people in your hand? You will die like men and I will judge you. That's what Psalm 82 says. Those kings thought of themselves as God. And so Jehovah says, oh, you think you're so strong, little man? Come, stand in front of me and look me in the eyes if you can, because you will die like men. And they have died. And they're gone, one after another. And they will continue to die. And God will continue to prove Psalm 82 true. So in the New Testament, Jesus says, if God, if God completely controls things in the Old Testament... Why would you be angry if his son says, I am God? It has nothing to do with men being able to speak money and health into existence. Value of hermeneutics. Let me show you four values of hermeneutics. 
Number one, hermeneutics brings the message of the Bible to the minds and hearts of God's people. That's why you need to study. Uh, Number two, it answers the difficult questions of culture, church life, and eternity. Number three, it protects the gospel. Number four, hermeneutics provides the difference between denominations and theology. Now, this is important. Let me stop at number four for a moment. I counted years ago in this town 50 churches between Chicota and Louis Tricart. Maybe there are more. I counted 50. Of those 50, how many do you think teach the same thing? I would guess 35 or 40 of them teach the same thing. The same exact thing. In fact, I have asked pastors in this town about other pastors in this town. I've asked both white and black pastors in this town. Do you teach the same thing as, and then I'll name a church, Emmanuel up on the northeast side, or Agape here on Munich Street, or Corpus Christi out in Mikado Park, or Healing Covenant in Chicota, or New Covenant up here? And I'll say to them, oh, do you know that church? Oh, yes, I know it. Do you teach the same thing as them, or do you teach something different? And then what do they say? Every single time. Do you want to guess what they say or do you want me to tell you? Every single time they say, we teach the same thing. Every single time. Even the ZCC, I picked up a pastor from the ZCC. And I said, what does your church teach? And he said, I've told you this before. He said, Rufuno, no budgeting. Just like that. He said, Rufuno, no budgeting. Love and budgeting. Where he got those ideas from, I don't know. If he's trying to just give me a joke or something, I'm not sure. But And I asked him, oh, do, does the ZCC teach the same thing as the other churches in town? And he said, yes. It's one Bible and one God. And we all teach the same thing. And I have been told that over and over. Now, I know that's not true. Well, I Largely is true. Most churches don't teach anything, and the ZCC doesn't teach anything. But how very interesting. The only justifiable reason to have two churches in a town is that they have opened their Bibles and studied their Bibles, but they just don't agree after having studied their Bible. So, for example, the Dutch Reformed Church baptizes babies. That's not in the Bible. But they think it is. They could not be members at my church. I would not allow, I would allow a Dutch Reformed person to come. He can come and listen. She can watch. But she cannot be a church member. Because she's not going to get baptized. I've had it happen before. I said, can I baptize you? No, no, I was already baptized. No, you were sprinkled. Yes, I was sprinkled. Well, that's not baptism. The Bible says you must go into the water and be pulled out of the water. So if you're not willing to be baptized, you can come and listen. You can sing, but you cannot be a church member. You cannot take the Lord's table. Which means Jonathan Edwards couldn't take the Lord's table in my church. 
nor George Whitfield. <laughs> These amazing Christians, unless you're baptized, you can't take the Lord's table in my church. Now, I would be happy to have a Jonathan Edwards or a George Whitfield here in this town planting a church. But they need a Baptist church as well. <laughs> the only biblical reason to have two churches in the same town is that they have studied the Bible with hermeneutics and said, okay, we love each other. We want to help each other, but we disagree about what is baptism. Or we disagree about some other thing that is very important. So while I know that man is a Christian... He and I, unfortunately, cannot have a church together. That's, the, that's one of the reasons that we have hermeneutics. The situation we have today is there are a great number of churches, and they do not have a biblical reason to exist. The only reason the church is there is because the pastor is prideful and selfish. And so he fought with another man, and the other man was prideful and selfish. And the words they use are this. They'll say, well, he just didn't have my vision. Another one will say, well, he just wasn't willing to follow my vision. They won't say anything. They won't give you Bible verses. They won't say, well, in the book of Matthew chapter 18, no, they won't do that. So these churches today that are divided, they are divided because each man wants power and attention and money and authority, not because they have a good reason to be divided. And that's one more piece of evidence that makes me think they're not even Christian churches. How could a Christian church separate for no good reason? I'm openly saying if I can find any church that preaches the gospel, I'll work with them. Well, these are the introductory thoughts we need to keep in our mind about hermeneutics as we begin. Any questions? Any questions?